In Micah chapter 5. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. <clears throat> Let's read this passage in its Old Testament context, talk about it there, and then see how does the Old Testament passage point us to the newness in Christ. Go with me to Micah 5, verses 1 through 5. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin right there in verse 1. <clears throat> the text reads, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With the rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Join me as we pray. Our Father, we come to you on the merits of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And we pray to you, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We confess openly we need you. In this congregation today are people, your people, that you've bought by the blood of Jesus, sons and daughters, that hurt in such a way it seems beyond repair. God, would you prove them wrong? Would you show even today miraculously you fill them up with affection and love, forgiveness and restoration. You give us all of the great luxuries that pour out to us from the cross. And I pray them for your people now. Help us. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. You may be seated. Go to the New Testament Gospels, and there you find the story of Christmas. John gives us, from a heaven, heavenly perspective, Jesus coming down is the picture of the transcendent one, Jesus. Luke gives us an extended view. You read the story of Christmas from Luke with children. That's the one I'll use on Christmas Eve is Luke chapter 2 and following. But Matthew does something different. When the New Testament writer Matthew, in his gospel, when he tells of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, he tells us about the wise men, you know, the magi coming from the east. They show up. <clears throat> and they go and meet with the king of the Jews named Herod, and they ask Herod, where is the one who was born king? Well, that makes Herod upset. You can read Matthew, he tells us, in fact, Matthew says it like this, uh, Matthew, uh, Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. 
So Matthew tells us that Herod gets all of the wise men, all of the scholars of the time, the Pharisees, the scribes, probably the priests, get them together and tell me now, where is this one these Persians are talking about? Where will Messiah and when will he be born? And they told him, we don't know when, but we do know where. And they opened the scroll to Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a nowhere town where the eternal plan of God would be revealed to his people. Now, if you're going to celebrate Advent rightly, if you're going to know Jesus thoroughly, if you're going to worship him genuinely, then we must see the saving beauty of the coming king, King Jesus, and how our God magnifies his own glory in the prophecy in the Old Testament and the fulfillment in the New Testament of the coming Christ. And how even the place itself, Bethlehem, the house of bread, even the place itself reminds us of God's love and grace to save. Now, Christmas is about a lot of things. Family and gifts and presents and eating and meeting and reconciliation and singing and parades and lighting trees and decorating. Christmas is about a lot of things. But when you read the Bible, you find out that Christmas is about God and how he saves. For the next few moments, I just want you to think with me. God. Christmas is about God and about how God saves. And you might use the question, how does he work? Let that drive. How does God work? How does he work? Several things I want you to see from the passage. Here's the first one about how God works. Number one, God works in weakness. Ever felt weak, lonely? Ever felt tired? God works in weakness. Micah chapter 5, verse 1, we're dropped into a terrible situation. It is not good. Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. Both of these men preach at a time when Jerusalem and the people of God will be teetering on the edge of decimation. Jerusalem, you'll find it in, the, in verse 1, Jerusalem is called the daughter of troops. Do you see that? Daughter of troops. That harkens back to her more militaristic days. Saul was the king and led him into great battle. And then David, the supreme king, David, even his son Solomon, expanded the territory of Israel through all of those fights and battles and wars. And the prophet says, you daughter, you think... You think you're so strong, daughter of troops, get your people together. That's what verse 1 is. You better get those troops come into town. And you look at it, there's a, there's a why. Because there's a siege. Used to be that uh, Jerusalem as a city-state would be sort of a Middle Eastern superpower. That day is gone. They're going to be under siege, Micah says. It's a siege war. Don't go running by that word siege. Siege warfare is a terrible thing. A walled city would be surrounded by troops. 
those troops would prevent any water going in or any food going into that town. So pretty soon the livestock would run out and you'd start eating horses. Once the horses are gone, you start eating dogs. If you can't find any more dogs, you start eating rats. It's a nasty, prolonged thing. That's verse 1. Siege. It's a sorry state of affairs that Jerusalem has fallen into and all of her leaders have fallen into. In fact, there's humiliation in verse 1. Notice what the text says about the ruler, the judge in Jerusalem. With a rod, they'll strike. Do you see it in verse 1? With a rod, they'll strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. It would be akin to me saying, with an open hand slap is nothing more than humiliation. So what you have here in verse 1 is this degrading situation, this degrading treatment showing the sorry state of affairs that Jerusalem, the people of God, and the leaders of God have sunk to the bottom. Helpless. Hopeless, even forgotten. You ever felt, I know you have, you ever felt like you're on the bottom? You know, it's funny how, it's funny how Christmas can make you feel sad. And there is no sadness like Christmas sadness. But in that sadness now, don't hate it, in that sadness, in that loneliness, what does God do in the text? God gives us this spark of hope. There it is in verse 2. Come with me to verse 2. And it comes from the unlikeliest of places. Bad news in verse 1, good news in verse 2. But you, see the contrast? But you, Bethlehem, house of red, Ephrathah, place of fruitfulness. What do we know about Bethlehem? We know some things here and there. Um, that little phrase, Bethlehem, too little, in verse 2, too little to be counted among the clans. That phrase, too little, ought to say, too insignificant. Bethlehem is not a big town. You get to Matthew chapter 2 and all those babies are killed in Bethlehem. It, it wasn't hundreds and thousands. It's still tra tragic, maybe 12 or 15. It's a small village, close-knit town. But every time you see Bethlehem mentioned in the Bible, there's always this, this weird, uh, dark hint of salvation. And even though it's an nowhere town, it pops up everywhere. I was reading in our Advent reading for the week. I hope that you've used that. And if not, you can start this week. Got to Genesis chapter 35 and Isaac and Rebekah. What a beautiful love story between the two of them. And Rebekah is pregnant with Benjamin. The pregnancy starts to go wrong near the end of that pregnancy. And as that baby is being delivered, Rebecca dies as Benjamin is born. And Genesis 35 tells us that they buried her at Bethlehem. And I looked at that and read it over and over this week. I thought, you know, that, that, is, a, that is a dark reverse gospel foreshadowing because just as Rachel died giving life to her son at Bethlehem, Jesus will be born in Bethlehem and he'll die giving life to his mother and anyone who believes. Bethlehem. Bethlehem is mentioned in the book of Ruth. You know the story of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth goes back with Naomi because a, a, a famine has struck the land and they go back to a place called Bethlehem. 
There Ruth will meet Boaz and they will marry and have children. Obed, Obed becomes the father of David and Bethlehem becomes the city of David. And so every time we hear the word Bethlehem, we're reminded that God works in weakness, in pain. God works in shame. I mean, isn't that the very theme of the gospel that we believe isn't that what the New Testament tells us? That it is the foolishness of the cross. The cross created by the Persians, perfected by the Romans. It wasn't just an instrument of execution. It was meant to humiliate. A man stripped of all his clothing, nailed up in front of everybody, stark naked, dying would be humiliation. And the cross intended by the Romans to be an instrument of shame will be the power of God used to save anyone who will believe. You take all of that and come back with me here and it's this, this drab framework Micah uses. This royal misfortune in Micah chapter 5 sets for us a glorious picture of God's saving purposes in Christ. Don't hate the weakness. Don't hate the small thing. Don't hate the pain. Like I know it's uncomfortable. Don't hate the loneliness. Don't hate the sadness. This is a hopeless situation. Don't, don't hate where God has brought you. God has put you there in the middle of that for a reason. God wastes nothing. That pain is the very framework for God to do his invading, saving, loving best in your heart and soul. Are you, are you weak? Hurt? You tired? Are you lonely? I want you to get your head up. Advent reminds us God works in weakness. Keep digging in this passage. Let's go back to it. Keep digging there. We find out that God works in weakness. How else does God work? Well, you keep looking at verse 2. There you'll find out that God, God works for His glory. Not for yours or mine. His. Let's go back and read verse 2. Uh, there's an important phrase in verse 2 that you'll miss if you don't pay attention. You just sort of go running by it. If you're not careful, you'll, you'll miss the phrase. Let me show it to you in verse 2. You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, slow down, from you will come forth one for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. You see it? From you, Bethlehem, a small town, shall come forth. Jesus is going to be born. See the reason? For me, a ruler in Israel. Notice the purpose behind this one coming forth. For me. Remember what's going on, this prophetic word? Here is God the Father speaking in verse 2. God the Father speaking about His Son, the Redeemer, and He's saying, My Son will come to mankind for me, for God. Be careful how you think about salvation. Be careful how you think about why God saves us. 
We often think about Jesus dying for us, and it is the right way to think about Jesus dying on the cross. Our understanding of salvation is substitutionary atonement. What we believe is that Jesus died in the place of sinners, and he paid for all the sins of every sinner that will ever be saved at the cross. Substitutionary atonement. We believe that Jesus died for me. But that's not the entire story, is it? Sometimes we, 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 live it, we leave it there and we think that here's the gospel, Jesus died for me. That's only half the gospel. That's a, that's a little bit of a use. And that's a, that, that gives rise to a prosperity gospel that, that God is doing these things for me. That doesn't seem to be what the text says. We used to even sing a song. <coughs> Excuse me, I don't, I don't know if we sang it here. I know that churches used to sing it a lot and had a line that went like this. He took the fall, and he thought of me above all. He thought of you above all? That's not only self-centered. It's not true. We forget. Certainly, he loves us. He's pursued us. He comes after us. He sacrificed for us. He died for us. He did that so that... We might bring honor and glory to God. You weren't saved for you. You were saved for him. Look, he, don't, don't get caught up in that prosperity gospel. He's not a trophy on your mantle. You are a trophy on his. Some, somewhere we fall into this misconception of God of why God saves us through Jesus. It's not primarily to keep us out of hell, although I am thankful for that. I'm thankful that this is the only hell I will ever know because of the grace of God given to me in Jesus. Thankful for that. But that is not why God saved you, just to keep you out of hell. Through Christ, God saves us so that for all eternity, starting right now, for all eternity, our lives reflect glory and honor back on the majestic name of our God. God saves you for His glory so that every part, every speck, every piece, every moment, every second of your life would be saturated with the glory of God. You were made for Him. You were bought by the blood of Jesus for him. Your life is to be lived, regardless of what's going on, for him. Walk back with me to the very beginning of your day. Come back, all the way back, to the time before you wake up and right as you wake up. Think with me now, your mornings. What are your mornings like? Do your mornings... Glorify God? Do you honor God at the beginning of your day? Are you in such a, such, a, such a terrible hurry? What is your home like, where, where you live, whether you're by yourself or, or you have a family? What is your home like? Is it a place where Christ is honored? What about work? A lot of us, you work, you, you work in a place where you are maybe the only Christian. 
You're the light in the darkness. Are you that light? Are you the salt that God has placed there? What about your phone? Most of us have a smartphone, and we spend a lot of time. If you're not careful, that phone becomes who you talk to the most. But are, are you honoring God with that device, which is a great device, can be used in wonderful ways. Are you honoring God there? Conversations. What about your language? The words you use. What about, what about the marriage God has put you in? Or, or the singleness that you're in? What about parenting? You have a child. Is that, is, are you honoring, to the best of your ability, or grandparenting? Are you honoring Christ? What about your body? The body God has given you is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I don't, and I don't just mean sexually, but certainly sexually. I mean in, in every conceivable way. Are you honoring God with the body he has given you or your hospitality? If I go to your browser on your device, your phone or tablet or computer, what does it show about you? Or social media and TikTok or Facebook or well, pick one, Instagram. Are you honoring God with, I mean, just pick an area in your life and put that before the Lord and say, I've been redeemed even in this little spot to honor God with my life. And Advent reminds us God works in weakness and God works for His glory. Press further on it. How else does He work? Here's a third thing to consider, number three. God works through providence. Providence. I want you to love the word providence. Let me show you where I get that. Let's read verses 2 and 3. I'm going to read them in sequence. We'll read them like you normally would, but I'd like to deal with them. Um, start with verse 3 and work up to verse 2. I'll show you what I mean. Verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore... He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the brothers of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. All right, stop in verse 3. Halfway up, verse 3. See the phrase? God will give them up. If you know the history uh, of, of Israel, Jerusalem will be overrun. The people of God will be taken into exile. It'll feel like they are completely forgotten. And it is God doing it. God will give them up. You know what that is right there? That is a hard providence. Something that we need to learn, that, that not all providence is good. It's, it's not always that that everything is good that God is doing. Sometimes it is hard and painful and it feels like it's unbearable. It's good to remember that God is controlling these terrible circumstances, that he is moving them according to his own plan and sometimes providence is a hard providence. But nonetheless, he is still in control even as he is allowing these terrible things, this prolonged event, Exile is a prolonged. Sometimes you feel like, is, is it ever going to get any better? I mean, isn't that what um, 
the hymn writer, William Cooper. Isn't that what William Cooper was trying to convey? Remember his hymn, uh, God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the seas and rides upon the storm. One of the lines in that hymn is such a great depiction of hard providence. It goes like this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. He's there, in other words. He's working in it in ways that you can't see and probably don't feel and would be hard-pressed to believe. He is manipulating and refining and testing and stretching. He's developing and, and creating in you that longing, that hunger. Is God put that there so that you would hunger for him. And according to verse 3, he worked that hard providence until, see verse 3, he has his timeline, until the time when, it starts sounding like Christmas here, when she who is in labor has given birth. The Apostle Paul picks this up. You know what he says in Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5? Paul says, but in the fullness, but when the fullness of time had come, that's when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. All of this in verse 3 is pointing up to a person in verse 2. You see the description of Jesus in verse 2? From you shall come forth for me what is the description? One who is to be ruler in Israel. Coming forth is from old ancient days. In other words, he is God. And he will be ruler. I would circle that word, ruler. It means sovereign. It means Lord. It means to actually be in charge. It is the picture in verse 2 of Jesus sitting on the throne as the one who is ruler of the universe. You find out later at the end of verse 4 that he reaches throughout the globe. He is universally Lord and he's calling his people to obedience. What does lordship look like? It looks like the king on the throne and his subjects obeying his commands. Here is lordship in full. You know what Advent reminds us? <clears throat> Advent reminds us that if Jesus is Savior, then he is Lord. And if Jesus is not Lord, then he is not Savior. The salvation that the Bible brings to us is not fire insurance. This means obedience, that there is evidence. Look, we need a new kind of Christianity, a new kind of Christianity, which is really an old kind of Christianity that is not marked by political activism, but is marked by personal obedience. That the number one indicator that you are a Christian is that your life reflects honor back on Jesus. What did Jesus say to his people? If you don't give up everything, you can't be my disciple. And the lordship of Jesus is this. He is ruling in the everyday events of your life. Advent reminds us. Christmas is about the, the inbreaking of a new kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ.
And it always brings up the question, although thankfully I've not heard this question around here in a long time. But the question is normally, can someone be saved, Jesus as Savior, and not have Jesus as Lord? And the Bible gives no category like that. There's not one shred of evidence in the New Testament that points to Jesus as Savior and not taking him as Lord. We need to not have a weak view of how God saves. When Christ becomes Savior, what happens is he calls it being born again. Paul said from dead to life. This is turning away from rebellion and sin and turning to the cross. They're finding forgiveness and reconciliation and absolute change and hope. And Advent is a reminder that our God our good God worked providentially in all of it. Look, every part, every event of your life, and he's doing that. Sometimes it's a hard providence. Sometimes it's a smiling providence. He's bringing you to trust him, to come and believe that he is with you. God works in weakness. God works for his glory, God works through providence. I'd like to tag one more thing before we close. Number four, how does God work? God works in, in victory, victory. Verse four and five, signs of victory. Now, when I say victory, <clears throat> when I say victory, I don't just mean victory of Christ, the the, the atonement theory that is Christus Victor, that is, that when Jesus died on the cross, he defeated Satan, that is absolutely true. Yes, we believe that, but that's not really what I'm talking about here. When I say victory, I mean that Advent reminds us of our, your victory in Christ. So what I want to do before we leave, I just want to give you four let, let's end the day with four words that will give us confidence as we face our week this week. Here's the first one. Here's the first word. It's the word protection. You see it in verse 4 when Micah describes this ruler. There in verse 4 we are told that he will stand. Here's the resurrected Jesus. Standing. The word stand is, is vigilance. To, to, to stand like a sentry guarding. Here is Stephen being martyred, and there as he dies, he has a vision of Jesus not sitting at the throne of God, standing. Here's the apostle John, the last one of the apostles to die, writing the book of Revelation, and he opens it up with a vision of Jesus. Go read Revelation 1. Jesus standing in the middle of his churches, holding his pastors. You, you can live your life with confidence because God protects his children. Protection. There's another word that I'd like to give you from this passage. It's found also in verse 4, and that is the word provision. Notice what the ruler is called right there in verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Shepherd his flock. All through the Bible, God is called shepherd. Do you know Psalm 23? Look, don't take Psalm 23 and just read it at a funeral. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
leads me beside the still water, restores my soul, he leads me on paths of righteousness, and he does that for his name's sake. And even if I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with me. It's all provision. What did Jesus say in Jesus in uh, John chapter 10? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep he's provided for you. You can live with confidence because of God's protection. By God's grace, you can live with confidence because of his provision, not just for your body, but for your soul. I'll give you a third word. It's the word power. You'll find it there near the end of verse 4, all those descriptors of Jesus. Look how he's described at the end of verse 4. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength, there's power, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Just go through and pick all those words out and see the power of God. Some commentators uh, thought this was talking about the divinity and the humanity of Christ. I suppose it could be, but really is this, is this majestic ruling of the one who saves us. He has power to do what he says he's going to do, to protect you, to provide for you. He has power. Three great words that bring us to that fourth one. You've already guessed it. It's there in verse 5. So what I want you to have is the word peace. You see the phrase in verse 5 right there? And he will be, you see it? He shall be their peace. Not he will give you peace. Not he will bless you with peace. He is the peace. And you don't have it. Wholeness, wellness, that's the word, shalom. Wholeness, wellness, completeness. You don't have it if you don't have Christ. Here, Advent, is the gospel of peace. God is holy. Men and women are sinners separated from God, doomed and going to hell. God in his love sent us Jesus. Jesus lived in a way you can't. We're not perfect. He is. And then he takes the wrath of God at the cross. That's why the cross. God put the judgment we deserve on him, and Jesus gives us his righteousness. Hey, if you'll believe that, that means putting down your old way of life and believe that, the gospel, that Jesus died for you. The promise of the Bible is Jesus will be your peace. Christmas. Christmas is about God. And how God saves people. He works in weakness. He works for his glory. He works through providence. And he brings us to victory. Peace in Jesus. I want you to have that as you walk out of here today. Will you join me as we pray together? Would you bow your heads where you are? And let's just think for a moment. Let's just think. Do you have that peace in Christ? Is that yours? Or is the darkness seem so overwhelming you've had everything but peace? We're going to sing in a minute. When we do, that's just a song of worship. That's a great time for any of you that want a pastor to pray with you or to pray for you just to come forward. Or maybe you just want to come up here and pray. 
That's a, I mean, this is the church God has given you. We invite you to do that. Maybe you just want to sing at the top of your lungs with joy to the God who is giving you peace. Or possibly you want to talk to one of our pastors for the conversation of what it means to give your life by faith to Christ. God has spoken to your heart this morning. When we sing, we'll invite you to come forward. Father, thank you for the grace that you give us in Jesus, for the peace of God that is real. I pray that you would press that on the hearts of your people. Call men and women to yourself. May we quietly but genuinely rejoice in the peace of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray.